everybody get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but foodie married beast anyway. And together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We have a great show for you today. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind people of a couple of things. The war in Ukraine continues to drag on. It's going to drag on for a while, and the only way the Ukrainians are going to beat the Russians is if they get lots of support from the world, including you. So open up your wallet. I don't care if it's a dollar, $5, whatever, and find a worthy charity through the Red Cross, through World Central Kitchen, through CNN.com slash impact, and help those folks. They need it. Uh, today is the in March in D.C., the March for Our Lives, uh, to get some kind of sanity in our, in our gun laws. Um, you can embrace the Second Amendment without hugging it to death, and that's what's happening. And we need uh, we need gun reform, um, and um, and Pride. It's Pride, Pride Month. Pride marches today, but it's Pride Month, and there's lots going on. Yeah. Yes. So all around the DC metro area, we are celebrating Pride. Show your rainbow colors and support those in the LGBTQIA community. Be an ally. Uh, be an ally, or. Uh, just be, however you want to do it. And remember, it's not just this month. It's all year round. But you can check out the list, com for every event, uh, drag brunch, cocktail, promo, celebrating and raising funds for all uh, all organizations that support those in the community. Um, all right. But let me just show you who's on the show today real quick. Okay. Uh, Can I just remind people quickly? Oh, go ahead. Follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for Everything going on in the D.C. metro area and more. I okay. would follow you anywhere. You better. I Go would. with it. All right. So first we've got uh, Mitch Berliner teed up from Central Farm Markets. There's a new market down by the stadium, uh, and he's got some cool stuff to tell us about. Mm-hmm. Uh, this takes a little bit, so bear with me. You'll remember back in March of 2011, a huge earthquake hit northeast Japan, the Tohoku region. Um, and along with the earthquake, they got uh, nailed by a huge tidal wave. It destroyed the farming industry. It destroyed the fishing industry. It it destroyed a nuclear plant. There's mm-hmm. a lot of there was a mess to clean up from. It's all coming back, and we have two folks with us. Uh, Rio uh, Tezukahashi is the agricultural attaché at the embassy. Did I do that right, Rio? Yes. Good enough. Okay, okay. man. And um, we have uh, Raiko Hirai with us, who is a really a cultural ambas- ambassador for everything Japanese. Um, Especially Suki, uh, Suki, <laughs> Saki, Suki, Saki. I did was doing so well. It was the Saku Saku uh, that got you the, confused. Uh, domo arigato. Okay. okay, but anyways, they're in to tell us about it. It's particularly, what's interesting is that the farming and, and fishing is coming back with the help of a lot of young people who've left the cities and are coming, and you know they've gone back to the land, which is really cool. So we'll hear about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're staying in town, there's a lot to do, like uh, some great summer activations. At the National Building Museum, Eileen Fuchs is here. She's the president and executive director of the museum. She's tell you, going to tell you all about it. Uh, you can travel virtually to Paris via Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can explore Shakespeare's Playhouse. But there's something else you want to know about Eileen. Okay. She was the first female bartender at Nobu in New York. Oh, my goodness. She Look made history. Dun, 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 dun. That's so cool. All right. And talk, talk about um, uh, busy women, mm-hmm. uh, along with Eileen. 
Uh, seven years ago, Dine Diaspora co-founders Mame, Bo- I want to do this, Boachi. I do it right? All right. I got a thumbs up. And Nino Oduro launched their black-owned, uh, and, and, and op- I'm sorry, black women-owned and operated agency to really promote uh, awareness in the culinary um, and community areas. Uh, the about- agency is called Dine Diaspora. Did, what did I say? You didn't say anything. I said they founded Dine Diaspora. Okay, well, now you did. Now so I said can it. Can we wrap this up? So and Mame is nodding. But yes. anyways, they do all kinds of really interesting stuff, and you're going to hear all about it. Okay. Today. But Great. let's go to Mitch. Hey, Mitch. So you're at uh, Half Street Market? I am. Great. It's How are things rock- going? It's rocking. We got live music, 30 vendors. We have first raspberries of the season, blueberries, strawberries, and one of my favorite, um, Young Harvest at all the markets. We'll have today, which is uh, Sunday, uh-huh. and they're having shoshito peppers, one of my favorites, oh, yes. first of the season. So let's talk about shoshito peppers, because we all see them almost on every menu. They're like ubiquitous these days. But how do you bring them home and prepare them at home? How do you recommend that? Well, there's still many people that are unfamiliar with them, mm-hmm. and when they see them, they automatically assume they're like a very spicy pepper that you'd use. Only every seventh season. one. Yeah, <laughs> one out of ten, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. That the... <laughs> so that's one of the genetic flukes. They are completely mild, mm-hmm. but one out of about every ten has got some spice. But it's not like a ghost. No, pepper it doesn't. It's not a kill you spice, right? Yeah. So how do you how do you recommend preparing them? Sure. The way we prepare them at home, and many people do. Um, in restaurants, etc., you just blister them in a pan, mm-hmm. and when they get uh, a little black on the outside, you got to rotate them. And when they get a little black, they're ready to go. They are delicious. They are. They're nice and firm, mm-hmm. but then when they're soft and blackened, they're ready to go. We like to just dip them in some um, nice uh, salt, mm-hmm. it's like a, a smoked cherry wood salt is one of our favorites. Oh, good idea. And other people like to. Uh, put them in garlic sauce, whatever, whatever you like. Mm-hmm. Some people told me they put them in scrambled eggs. That's um, such a that good idea. Delicious. Well, that's what I was going to ask because I feel like we just see them as something to snack on or something that you would serve as a starter. But are they a pepper worthy of like dicing into a salad or putting in other stews or whatever, putting pop, popping on the grill? Like, is that something else we can do with them? Yeah, well, you can't prepare them on the grill you just uh, you have to watch them and turn them and when they're black they're ready to go right but, but you can't put them on a salad or anything else unless they are cooked they really don't taste it's very interesting they don't taste good at all oh unless when they're, they're cooked. raw fascinating so but um once you i think there would be i haven't done this and i think that's a great idea um blacken up some and put them in a salad Mm. I think that'd be delicious in the salad. I'm I'm sorry, I'm but sorry, I'm going to help with... you out here because we had a couple left over. This is a while back, and I put them in a sandwich, and mm. they added real kick. They were delicious. That's so, a good idea. So there, like a relish. I'm a genius. Okay. What can I say? All right, Mitch. Tell everybody where we can find Central Farm right. Markets. Well, thank you. At four locations, uh, two on Saturday. One's a brand new Half Street. Uh, Located on Half Street between M&N, right mm-hmm. in front of the Nats Stadium. We also have our Pike. That's our 11th year at the Pike and Rose. That's every Saturday as well. And then we have our flagship market, the Bethesda Central Farm Market on the elementary school, 
right downtown Bethesda. And we also have the Nova Market for our Northern Virginia customers on the parking lot of the Marshall High School. So come visit wherever you're close and buy local and support the local farmers and artisan food producers. We're okay. with you. All right, Mitch. All right, thanks thanks Mitch. so much. All right. Rio and Rico. Sounds like a comedy duo, doesn't it? <laughs> Rio and Rico. <laughs> but the subject matter is really serious. Um, just again, if you folks remember, back in 2011, uh, Northeast Japan w- on, along the coast was hit by an unbelievable an earthquake. I think it was in the seven scale. No, the, it's higher. It's nine, right? Nine. Was it was a nine? Nine. 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 Let's give them two. Give yeah. them nine. Okay. And then uh, a huge tidal wave that just devastated the area. And uh, along with that, there was a nuclear power plant there that was affected. And, um, you know, everybody was pretty freaked out. Amazingly, uh, 10 years later, the, the whole region is coming back and the nuclear problem is under control. And why don't we start, uh, Rio, why don't we start with you and just kind of talk about what was and, and what's happening now. Because right, because I don't think people in the United States are aware of the uh, about mm-hmm. that region and mm-hmm. sort of the agricultural mm-hmm. power that it was mm-hmm. pre yeah. the earthquake. Yeah, actually, the Tohoku region, the 10 years ago, the massive earthquake, magnitude 9.0, hit that area mm-hmm. and devastating tsunami followed and uh, swiped away everything mm-hmm. and caused uh, 20,000 20, people. Yeah. And actually, the Tohoku is less known to people compared to Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto. But it's northeast part of Japan and it's a primary food supply region. Japan. So the main industry is uh, farming and fishing. Mm -hmm. But the weather is severe. In the winter, there are severe snowfalls. So living in that area is not easy compared Mm -hmm. to Tokyo. But that makes the Tohoku people kind of a character very resilient. (laughs) So that's why like 10 years has passed. Now their life returned to normal. And there are like fishing, farming, and food processing, and uh, they are returned with many positive changes. Very, very young generations are going into that region. So uh, we are trying to introduce those kind of farmers and fishermen's passion to foodies in D.C. Well, let's talk about that uh-huh. for a second, because, um, because it was a more sparsely populated area, when you lose 20,000 people, it's like losing 10 times that. In yeah, a, what know. was the pull to bring a younger generation back? Yeah, the, actually, the, it used to be like the farming and fishing is kind of labor-intensive mm-hmm. and not very good jobs. But the, many people found it, it really challenging the, due to the like, earthquake. They didn't know the, like the value of the farming and the fishing. But the, like the earthquake like, makes them to refocus those mm. kind of the industry. And uh, they want to try to kind of combat those kind of the image of the primary industry, farming or fishing, like the very innovative, very cool. And it's kind of a contribute to the, like the world problem. So when we talk about farm, the two different industries, the farming and fishing industries, mm-hmm. let's talk about farming for a minute. What is the region known for today when it comes to farming? Oh, there, it's very difficult to just like pick one thing. Okay. Like in Tohoku, the, it's the largest part of kind of a paddy field. 
like、mm. the rice, as well as kind of the fruits. Like the Tohoku is, I would say, like I'm from Tohoku, I'm from Fukushima. It's kind of Tojaro land of kind of agriculture produces. And the、uh, uh, one thing is like the young generations are、uh, the like they found it really valuable. Found it really the worst challenge to their lives.、Mm-hmm. So, the, some of them just come to their hometown and en- engage the farming activity again, or other people they used to have no connection to those areas, or like the people who born and raised in New York now engaging in kind of Fukushima like food processing. So that is kind of a whole positive change. But the, the thing hanging over all of this was the nuclear disaster.、Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I think people remember 2011, what happened, and may not be aware of how the cleanup has gone because you can't、mm-hmm. go back and farm, you can't go back and fish if you're going to be exposed to radiation or if your crops or your fish are, are going to be full of radiation. And that's not the case. And very interesting. So tell us a little bit about that, too. Yes, that's. That's definitely not the case. And we have a strong kind of a monitoring, like the government h a v e a monitoring system.、Mm-hmm. And but the, like, what happened after the earthquake is like, even though those kind of situations are controlled, but like the, there, there were very negative opinions against Fukushima. It, so, like, the many, some people left farming and never came back.、Right. Mm. But、uh, at that time, actually, I was in Washington, D.C. for my master's degree. And、uh, I heard like, the American people in Japan like, they, like, like, forced evacuation about to happen at that time.、Mm-hmm. But then Ambassador John Ruth controlled the situation. So at that time, I said to American people, like, well, I'm not sure at the time how many will it take to, like, to return to the normal situation.、Mm. But I'm proud to say, and like, fortunately, like, Japan finally opened at the border again、mm-hmm. due to the COVID. So please like,、uh, come to Japan again and taste our really tasty agriculture. Well, you're going to take wait, 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 wait. right after、Hello. the show, right?、Hi. No? We're going to take a quick break. When、oh. we come back, we're going to talk about some of these products. Because、uh, we've had the pleasure of trying them. This is David and Nikki Nellis, Foodie and the Beast. We'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis, and we're talking to Ryo Tsuzuki Hashi. Am I doing it right? God, I love that. That's good. That's why I don't do it. <laughs> Who is with, he, he's with the Embassy of Japan. He's a cultural attache there.、Uh-huh. And, and what we call our Japanese cultural ambassador, Raiko Hirai, who is the owner of Happy Enterprises. But、uh, she well, is. Well, she's been in before.、Um, yeah. For,、uh, DC Sake. She is really an ambassador in the region, the, educating everyone on sake. The whole and, point is to really get everybody in, in, in DC and, and, of course, the US a,、mm-hmm. a lot more familiar with Japanese culture, food,、uh, cocktails, drinks, the works. Am I right? Let's all go well, to Japan. But I do think it's important, you know, I think what both of you are doing is important to educate the American consumer. On the products out of Japan, because a more educated consumer has the purchasing power, right? When they know what the products are. So let's talk about that a little bit. What, what are some of the products coming out of the region 
uh, you know, as far as fish that we're looking at? Because, I mean, one of the things I don't think we've even really discussed is sushi. I mean, actually, we were just talking sushi in studio. But, you know, the American population eats so much sushi. And, you know, 30 years ago, there were no sushi restaurants in this country. And now, or maybe 40 years ago. 40. Because I had my ago. first sushi in 1980. Okay. So, so 40. Sorry. Uh, so, but now, you know, there's one on every... There's street corner. They're ubiquitous. So how does the fish from the region uh, influence our sushi eating habits? Oh, so seafood is uh, another kind of primary industry in Tohoku region. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, like the ocean current from the north and the south meets, meets the coast of Tohoku. So okay. it makes that area the one of the m- most resource-rich ocean in the world, mm-hmm. like Bering Sea or kind of North Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. in the United States. And uh, thanks to that kind of resources, the seafood processing is actually, the, there is a seafood processing cluster at the, in Tohoku coast. And what, proud, uh, what we have in there like, very proudly is actually like the fish caught in the morning in the vessel immediately landed in the fisherman's well. And actually, the like, fishing processing company buy the fish at the well. Right there and the then boat, right. just 30 seconds after the boat, they like sipped to their like seafood processing factories. Mm-hmm. So even though there, it's a, oh, we have a bunch of the fresh fish, but even though they are frozen, they are still super fresh, still sushi quality. Do they farm? Are there, is there any fish yeah, farming? Yeah, there are because... like the oyster, salmon, mm-hmm. or there are yeah, many yeah, the farming, mm-hmm. actually, like the nori, or, yeah. Actually, I think we have like, like 200 more kind of species or kinds of fish Amazing. in that area. I, I got a question, because I love eel, but are there eel farms? Eel? Eel. Uh, eel, the, there's no farming, but uh, there's kind of a wild, uh, wild catch in sure. eel in huh. that region. How do they do that? Okay, <laughs> that's another show. So, Franco, let's talk about your involvement in all this. Yes. Because, as we said, you're very involved in, uh, you know, uh, telling people and educating people about Japanese culture and cuisine. Um, where do you fall in on yeah, all this? Yeah, so... so um, so I have been in uh, Washington D.C. for more than ten years, fifteen years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And as as uh, during that time, I started to meet a lot of local people. And at the same time, uh, people like Rio, uh, who comes in only for maybe three years at the most from mm-hmm. the uh, from the Japan as an attaché, at the, as an attaché, mm-hmm. and then in three years they're not going to have a network like I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear their story. I hear uh, what Japan have. I, I came here when I was high school, so I know Japan, but I don't know everything about Japan. And these attaché's uh, stories or attaché's passion are something that is also very passionate for me, but it's added to that is that I am also from Japan. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I feel... It's like a marriage. The, yes. <laughs> it's a partnership. It's, it's a partnership. It's like. Yeah, so I hear these, uh, you know, things that they are bringing in, and I see that it's just so important to tell the story 
and have introduced that to the American people. And then I have a connection like you or my friend, you know, Holly and uh -huh. all these people that, you know, uh, that knows how to project. It's my job is to connect those people and then even make it even more. Well, obviously having platforms in order to amplify your message is so important and you do such an amazing job Thank of you. that. We have about two minutes left. I want to talk about some of the products that are coming out of the region that uh, people in this area should sort of be keeping their eyes that open That we tried for. that are a lot of fun. Yeah, like yeah. the, can we talk Koji? Uh, Koji, Koji is a kind of a, some of you may frighten, it's, but uh, it's kind of a mold. Right. But, uh, it's really beautiful. But it looks mold. like soy sauce. Like if you don't uh, yeah. know and you look at the packaging, you think it's soy sauce, but that's not what it is. Uh, actually, the cozy is a technique of fermentation, and mm -hmm. it's core ingredient of fermentation. Without cozy, we like Japanese don't have miso, sake, or even soy sauce. So, the I don't think I can imagine the. Like sushi without soy sauce. Right. Koji, a, koji is basically our national mold. But where does it come from? I mean, right. How does it, how it, it's, it's, it's from a, the grain, like rice or wheat or... It's like, you know. Isn't it? Is it like, I'm going to mispronounce this, mm -hmm. the mold that grows on corn that they use in Mexico? Is it wheat la, wheat la rouge? Does anybody... Know what I'm talking about? The corn. What mold. an we, international we, show this no, is. No, he's Jewish, but it's I a mean. mold that grows on the corn mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is considered a delicacy. Hootla kuche. Thank you, Holly. Hootla kuche. So is it similar in that? I think it's similar. Like the, every country has their every kind of like cozy like story. <laughs> <that> <laughs> culture. Excuse me. And uh, so that's why I think that like the fermentation is really kind of a great technique that makes the food restaurant, and uh, that enhances the uh, nutrients. And every country has their own right technique. Well, and I think, actually, fermentation is so important because it's so good for human guts. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, what is interesting is the cuisines around the world, everybody does have a fermentation yeah. that helps us better digest our food and accent our food, whether through flavor or just through good health. So yes. I've got a question because yeah, we're going to we wrap up. But left. can we... Can tourists go to Tohoku, to the region now? And I mean, are there places to stay and all of that or not yet? Yeah, absolutely. There are very, like, great hot spring, like the great hot cuisine, spring. like lunch, dinner, like ramen, sushi, mm. everything that you I'm there. can imagine Let's go. in Japan. Like, we, that Tohoku, you can enjoy. In a few weeks, we'll be halfway there. We can just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So how do people stay in touch with all this? How do people stay educated? Where can they find both of you? And keep up on everything. Um, the we like the Japanese Japanese embassy are really welcome to your kind of a feedback mm -hmm. and the like the su suggestion or something like the just like the uh, if you are interested in Tohoku area, mm -hmm. just like you can go into the Japanese embassy's homepage and just like please send me email. Oh. <laughs> and gotcha. I'll the, definitely respond to your interest. Excellent. Okay. Cool. And uh, Reka, where can we find you? Yes, uh, I have an uh, Instagram uh, tag, uh, happy ent, E N T. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, but happy it's H A P P I, right? H A P P I uh, dash E V E N T. Yes. All right. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, Thank I'm you your, both for coming in. I'm your publicist. All right. I'm going to have too. you all switch out because Eileen is coming up to the mic. So come on up, Eileen. Now, I want to say Eileen Fuchs is not coming in her 
capacity as a former bartender at. Um, <laughs> no, but I want to know her trajectory. In New York. So well, wait, let's, to let's be fair, no, 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 wait, 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 no, 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 please. Oh, so boy. I actually have interviewed Eileen now twice. Once. Just the once. Mm-hmm. So she was on uh, Industry Night a couple of weeks ago uh, with the people who developed the technology behind the current exhibit that is there. But why don't we say who she is? Okay, because why don't she you is start? the president okay. and executive director. You must have like kidnapped somebody. You got both titles? Look at that. <laughs> president and executive director Apparently. at the National <laughs> Building Museum where they have great events, great private parties, mm-hmm. where I went for my draft physical. Lots of things happened there. <laughs> okay. um, and a great mission. Yeah, yeah, an amazing mission. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, how'd what you get there? What is the mission? Yeah, uh, our mission is to educate and engage people about the built environment and its impact on their lives and their communities. So we were, you know, quick, quick, I promise, quick story. We were, you know, founded in 1980 to tell the national story about the built environment, the, built, the places where we live and work and play. Right, you know? because architecture is everywhere. It's exa- exa- exactly and it right. Is, and it is everything. Exactly. With and, a special emphasis on... I mean, design, construction, architecture. But lead, lead appropriate buildings... Well, sure. that's not the past. That's no, the it's not the past. I mean, sure, the... yeah. I mean, the, the, we, we, we care, as we look forward, I think, I think if, probably as we look back, I mean, we care about how we build that, that will serve our climate, equity, and public health agendas, right? That, right. And I, and I think we're living in an unprecedented time where we can build back, and I don't want to, I don't want to say build back better and get and get a, a political take no, here. Well, no, but, on, but this, it's, on this show you would be true. applauded, so yeah. don't worry. Yeah. But, so I am just sort of curious, when we talk about the mission and I don't want to go off on a tangent yeah. of the museum, uh-huh. but infrastructure is a huge conversation yes. in this country. How do you work within that? Yeah, I mean, just yesterday, I spent my last two days with the the, the Department of Housing and, and Urban Development, you know, came together with the National Association of Home Builders and the National Building Museum, and we just had a summit about affordable housing, right? We are talking, uh, we're doing, an, we're working on an exhibit right now about the metro and about infrastructure in, in cities, and we're always talking. We're kind of a, we are we are a convener that brings the public you know, policy and and private industry together around a table to to really talk about the things that need to happen to build you know our future our future cities and our future country. I, I don't think a lot of people would realize that the museum would have such a valuable role. Yeah. In those conversations, but it does make a lot of sense. Now, you're we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, the museum is also known for its crazy fun activations yes, yes, every yes, year yes. like the beach was insane yep, yep. so we're gonna we're gonna catch up on what you guys are all doing there to engage with the population fantastic this is david and nikki nellis foodie in the beast things to do this summer we'll be back in a sec all right we're back on foodie in the beast with david and nikki nellis we're talking to eileen fuchs who is president and executive director of the national building museum and i mean We've been to the museum. We've been to events at the museum, mm-hmm. but you do some really fun activations. Well, no, no, no. We're going to back up. So, how long ago was the beach? I think the beach was the first one. So that must be eight years ago. Okay. I mean, I dove into those balls. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. like, I brought my yeah. kids there, and now I think, like, post COVID, like, I can't believe I dove into right. that pit of germs and right. whatever right. was there. But it was so beautiful. It was so gorgeously yeah. done. Yeah. And I think that that really changed the tenor of how museums and and really not just that but like real estate in this yeah. city was like oh we have a new way to engage with people who come in mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so how do you guys grow from that and how do you change in our into our current times yeah i mean i i don't think we're ready for a ball pit again right now no. you know and and also as these things take a long time to plan and so when you're trying to plan through through the you know 
the, unre- the unrelenting uncertainty of COVID, we wanted to do something that was going to be different, engage new audiences, but not, you know, be at that level of immersion, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so we have a, we have a lot, we're, we're planning a couple years out here. And so we're excited about how we engage with great high design also, you know, that also kind of engages a, an intergenerational uh, right. audience. Well, so let's but, talk about wait, the wait, Notre Dame exhibit. No, let's no, no, talk no. about that. Yes. I'm yeah. taking over. Okay. So Notre Dame. Okay. 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 It's a, it's a, I, the description is a 360 degree augmented reality immersion into the 850 year history of the cathedral. There you go. But who puts that together? I mean, you don't just sit around one day and go, let's, you know, is <laughs> yeah. it come to you packaged or so, do you? So that, that I mean, it, we, we have all different ways we approach things. Sometimes we, you know, the, the seed starts with us. Sometimes it, come, it comes to us. That was a, a company we, that the museum I've been talking to for a while. It's, called, it's a French startup company called Histopad, right? Um, it's it, really cool. It's so cool. And they're, you know, we're, and they worked really, really closely with, you know, different, different, American and French based technologies that used, you know, BIM technology, which is, you know, building, you know, imaging to put this, to kind of package this together. And, and we talked about it. And, you know, for us, again, we're about the built environment in a national and international conversation. Is there a more famous building than, you know, the Notre Dame, right? right. That has had such impact. Even if you've never been there, like you've experienced it in movies or literature or, you know, religion. So we were like, we have to tell this now, amazing Did the Catholic <laughs> Church fund the building of the, of, of the, of the church originally, or was it a French emperor who? I mean, that's a long, that's a long, long history. Right, because it took there. so long it, it, to get it took, built. You know, hundreds and hundreds, you know, hundreds of years. You're starting, you're starting in the 1100s, 1200s. Right. You know, so it was a, a a long, complicated history. But what's interesting about it, and what you're able to tell throughout this exhibit, so if you could walk people people through it just yeah. a little bit, yeah, you're able to show people yep. not just the building over the centuries, but also the people, the the architecture, the the, the trade technology, yeah. like. And I use technology in quotes yeah. because there was no technology, obviously, in the 1200s. But yes, there, it was. it was considered technology in a in a weird absolutely. way, right? Ab- absolutely. I mean, and, and and those techniques, especially the way that they're now re- they're reconstructing it, they're using traditional techniques. I mean, you're still you're still having that 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 level of of, of skilled work. And so in, in the exhibit, we're not we're looking at the full construction plus the fire in, in with with an, from an image and vantage points. That you've never seen before, right? And then the reconstruction. Now, so, how do right? people? How do you? How does the layperson who goes in to see this exhibit? How do we experience? It's super it? accessible. I, I, I'll tell you this. I went there with two six-year-olds, my kids, two seventy-six-year-olds, my parents, and my husband, who's a firefighter. So, I actually had the whole breath of like, let's see who's like, and every person loved it. Okay. I mean, because you you get this. We call it a histopad. You're holding it in your hand, and you're kind of you know, if you have you ever seen people like who have like the VR kind of headphones on, like kind of being yes. it's, it's a little, little bit like that because you you get a full 360 view of different stations, different points in time. So you basically take an mm-hmm. iPad like that's right thing. That's right, and you hold it to look at different. That's things. right. Well, well, but there's also but you you walk out, you approach really big, beautiful, never kind of seen before um, images and and those kind of activate you in different places and in different spots and in different points in history, like Napoleon's coronation or, you know, the fire on, on day two and right. et cetera. How many people can come at once? Um, I mean, again, COVID time. So we're, I mean, we're, we, we restrict it. We're probably like, you know, we let 30 people through at a time type thing. So do you make a reservation or do you um, just show? No, you can show up. You show up. Yeah. And it, we're, we are open. We just opened for, we're open for a fifth day now. So we're open Thursday through Monday, 11 to four. All right, I'm going to take you to another activation. Okay. You ready? Go. Summer block party. Woo! The Playhouse. Yep. What's happening? Cool. Okay. Because, you know, often when I'm in a, an apartment building and I'm looking for someone's mm. apartment, I will say to be or not to be. 
Which oh my! I believe I live with them. Oh my gosh! Go no, All right, so no well, what an intro. This is a, a to the bard, small bitty window into my life. To the bard. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's yeah. hear. Great. So we're partnering with the amazing Folger Shakespeare Library, and they are under you know construction, and it's an incredible, I think, incredible cultural partnership between two institutions. We're coming in, doing the Playhouse. So during the day, you come in. And you are immersed in Shakespeare's world. You are doing sword fighting, face painting, um, behind-the-scenes tours, building an Elizabethan cool. city. And at night, it's six nights a week. It's a beautiful, immersive um, performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, my God. We have to go do You that. have to, yes. Not to mention, you though, what an amazing uh, thing for the summer, right? Yeah. Kids are out of school, stuff like that. This is perfect. Right. Well, it's like what you were saying earlier about the ball. Like, it's not a ball pit because we're not there yet. But right. So, so this, is a, this is a way to really no, be but I'd like to do some... Sword fighting with you. That would be yeah. fun. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. totally. Like I don't know if I'm like, I, I don't want to let you guys have swords, yeah, actually. Seriously? Yeah, I'm not no. sure. That's not actually what CBD. he's talking about. But anyway. <laughs> um, okay. And then lastly, I want to talk about your latest addition in the museum, Saku Saku Lakery. Yes. Yay! Tell me more. So excited. So, I mean, I, I've been at the museum for one year now, and so I've, I've, yet, I've never experienced it yet with a cafe. We wanted to reopen with something new and wonderful and locally you know locally mm-hmm. based and so we developed conversations with sakusako flakery flakery and we just opened with them as our pop-up they are do it they are japanese and french inspired um pastries mm-hmm. so incredible i mean i am talking i'm an almond croissant like fanatic right amazing and yeah, the pistachio croissant and you know just unbelievable and you know i just have to say from a visitor experience i had that moment where i was like oh my god i'm having the best croissant of my life while also in Paris, because I'm in Notre, the Notre Dame exhibit. You're like, I'm like, this, this is, is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great. It's really great. All right. So tell everybody, please, where. I think my eardrums just went. <laughs> okay. Eileen, okay, tell everybody where we can find out about all these fabulous things happening in the National Building Museum and stay up to date. MBM.com is our is our website. And then you, know, you find us on Facebook, find us on Insta, find us on, on TikTok, where our audience is growing bananas because we have so much fun stuff going on on TikTok. So. Check us out. Do you want to? Do you want to tease anything for like the fall? Um, oh, the, fa- the the fall we're it, we're doing an, an amazing series, an, an equity series. We're going to be having highlighting many, many, many black and women um, architects, and I'm really excited about some of the things we're going to do. And we're also looking at an affordable housing exhibition. So we're going to do some serious stuff while well, we'll also bring you back staying cool. for all that. Yeah, please okay. do. Okay, thanks. Please do. Thank well. you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's a good segue because we have two incredible women of color who are joining us today at the mic. Rushing to their chairs. Right. There we go. Dying diaspora. So, um, hi. Thank you both for joining us. It's so good to see both of you in person. Do you want to do the introduction? I will do the introduction. Go ahead. So, Dying Diaspora was founded seven years ago by Mame Boachi and Nina Oduro, who are sitting to my left. They launched their black women-owned and operated agency to really promote culinary uh, community um, uh, and 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 commerce related to the, the the African diaspora, and for people to understand how much of our current culture and and what we eat and what we order regularly every day and what we live and what we enjoy. But I want to hear how you guys started it because Nina was on Industry Night with me, and your beginning is really interesting, like how you guys initially started executing the project. Yeah, so that's a really fun story, actually, because Mommy and I knew each other, but Mommy had her own venture. I had my own venture. Mm-hmm. And um, we were different places um, around the world, like, connecting. And then we ended up here both here in D.C. at the same time. And coming back, we were honestly having trouble kind of 
um, making meaningful connections. Our whole thing was like, wow, DC people are very like transactional. Like, mm-hmm. hey, like, hi, nice to meet you. What do you <laughs> do? What do you do? Right. How much do you make? Right. <laughs> and I am from the DC area, so I'm all up in that. But then I want it a lot more, and it's just so easy to all, like be all like work, work, work. So we decided to hey, like let's let's actually do something where we connect people um, over food um, to basically build more meaningful relationships mm-hmm. um, and identifying that many of the cuisines that we were connected to our African diaspora cuisines. Um, were with chefs that honestly weren't able to do their own menus in restaurants they were working in. Mm. So we basically curated a really amazing dinner um, and invited um, Chef Erica Japong, um, mm-hmm. who was our first Good chef we, we featured. Yeah, he's been yeah. On here a couple of times. <laughs> and he um, curated he's a menu. He's too handsome. That's the <laughs> every time he comes <laughs> in, Nikki he goes. Is, he is we're, very we're, attractive. We're driving home. She goes, "Isn't Eric handsome?" Was <laughs> he like, is attractive. Go to hell, Eric. But so is That's what but I his say. wife. Is stunning mm. and a beautiful family. Girl. Oh my god. That's that what baby, I said, but his wife's a babe, family. so yeah. there we go. We're going to stay out of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but that was the catalyst of it all, and, mm-hmm. and people just that came, um, we asked them to invite others to the next one and the next one, so the but community grew from there. Did you have, like, an epiphany at some point going, you know, there are all these foods that people are eating, and they really don't know, and in the any culture that's true, but they don't know where they came from and why they're here, and, um, and they're so fully, you know— um, Entrenched in our— not entrenched. I mean, we, it would saturate okay. our, our, you know, our culinary consciousness. What did at one point did you go? That's what we got to focus on, or how did it happen? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the power of storytelling, right? And being mm-hmm. able to storytell through food and having the ability to have our chefs, who were part of a number of our engagements, be able to share that directly for themselves and to share their narrative, their culture, and how that's weaved through the foods that we eat today, mm-hmm. um, and how you'll see that there's just so many commonalities and similarities to um, our foods, but also just the ingredients, right? You know, when you're looking at beans, when you're looking at okra, all of that, and to have the expertise of these chefs come in and weave that with just their storytelling of their heritage, how they got into the food and um, food and beverage industry or whatever um, avenue that they've uh, reached and be able to really... Um, come together at a table with different people coming from different industries and weave that into a meal um, is is quite a powerful experience. So we were doing that with our signature dinners. We did that with also our festival chop bar as well Mm -hmm. and have continued to expand that within our uh, uh, speaker series and with the opportunities that we connect uh, chefs to. So how does that fast forward to today? I mean, so we have the pandemic, obviously. I mean, we're still sort of in it, we but do. you know what, what I mean. What pandemic? But like, how did you guys sort of evolve what you were doing and move it to where you are now? We definitely let the community that we were building tell us what they wanted. So every time we were thinking of an idea, it was it was mainly because the community was asking for it. There was a gap. And then we would test it. So, you know, like the dinner, we tested it for a while. We, we realized that it wasn't as, as sustainable as we wanted well, it to a, be. It's a financially, you and I have discussed this. Financially, yeah. those things, they sound great and they are necessary for the community. But for the people who organize it and put it on, finding a way to make it financially well, profitable. Well, where do the dinners tough. happen? In restaurants or in homes or in or wherever? Venues we would get or homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, the, the whole cost of everything sometimes and then paying the chefs and paying right. all, all that. wages. But amazing, right? Amazing experience. People, the yeah. people, the community grew from there. And so when we decided to carry it on, we actually focused more on the talent, on the chefs and what they needed. 
listening to them because we always knew that the industry is um, food industry is highly inequitable. And so if we're trying to really create community around this food, we needed to help them solve their problems. Mm. And so a lot of the things that we offer centered Wait, so around the talent. Too? Are you guys therapists? We are a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> we are a lot of things. But also I think, you know, and you spoke about this with Nina too, in terms of the pandemic allowing us to slow down and having some important conversations, mm-hmm. really recognizing what this industry um, is and how we can present uh, solutions to that too as well and and really focusing on the talent there and not only trying to create opportunities for them but really focusing on some of the key pain points and challenges that come to that and that comes with just funding right having capital mo- right capital right. I mean listen that is something we hear on this show a lot and on industry night or you know I mean it's in yeah. the it's in the ether I mean uh, women people of color Absolutely. Uh, all people you know, white males have access to a lot more mm-hmm. financial capital when it comes to not just the retail business, but the restaurant business as well. I'm going to leave well. the room. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. If you look at um, just the median seed funding, right, mm-hmm. um, for black women, it's about 125K when the national average is about 2.5 million. And so you see that drastic um, disparity between those numbers. And right now, you know, we can talk a little bit about it, what we're doing to really address well, that. We have really to take a break, important. so I'm just going to put a pin awesome. in it. Yeah. Put okay. a pin in it. This is David and Nikki Nellis, Foodie and the Beast. We'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Dine Diaspora. but And and I want to stay on the thing of funding, but afterwards, I want you to walk us through a typical event, like the educational part of what am I eating and where did it come from and who brought this food here and all of that. So uh, the only thing I was going to mention was we do know, uh, I mean, hopefully the funding part of this challenge is being um, ameliorated to to some degree by mostly smart women and smart women of color. We have a neighbor who just actually she just wrote a book, too, but she's Mm -hmm. created a uh, uh, an IMF fund that patients um, who is inaptly named. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, she's impatient. We call her impatient. But, um, um, you know, uh, hopefully the world's kind of waking up to the need to, to do that. Where did your funding come from? So we reached, well, we started a, an initiative called Black Women in Food. Um, and Black Women in Food really is centers around our own pain point when we were working with many chefs um, in the industry and recognized that we were contributing to the idea of um, males being at the center um, and shape that shapes our society. Right, you're like, anyway. Where are the women at? Where yeah, are they? and so we looked at ourselves. We're women. We should be positioning women at the forefront of this industry, especially because they're missing. Um, and oftentimes, Black women seem invisible, even though they are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started Black Women in Food Initiative to really center Black women's voices, Black women's contributions, and recognize from them. We were hearing from them that funding was their one of their number one pain points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went to our um, our, our the, the companies that we work with, the companies our clients, honestly. Um, and in the food industry to say, hey, how can we get funds to be able to support these women? So um, we've been able to build a, a grant um, that will be going out. We're launching it next week, actually, for black women owned restaurants mm. um, sp- um, sponsored and funded by Eokra, which is a black focused um, app for finding um, f- um, black food restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the collaboration there is just, you know, the synergy just really fits Isn't to be able to support these women. Isn't knowing nothing? It's like, it's like <laughs> yeah. heading off into the frontier. You know, you've never been there. But and it's you there. Learn, you, you just have to look You build the blocks. So how big is the uh, is the uh, award? So we're t- this year we're giving out two awards um, of $10,000 each Good. to That's two amazing. restaurants from um, anywhere in the United States. 
Great. So let's talk about the process and what this event, how this event will culminate. Yeah. So tell about the series until we get to the conference. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there are a number of things that are happening uh, throughout the start now throughout the end of the year. And it'll be a number of speaker series where we're really focusing again on black women in food. So um, that will happen in New York as well as in Washington, D.C. and some other states, too. Mm -hmm. And really working with um, Eat Okra to really amplify uh, the voices of women across this industry. And again, we really expand it to look across the food system as well. Um, so when that comes to media, hospitality, uh, restaurants, as well as advocacy too as well, because we do know a lot of women are driving a lot of impact in climate change and in climate action. And so we're also looking to amplify those voices. All right, well, take me back to Dine Diaspora. Okay, yeah. so you plan an event, you brought you you promote it, we buy tickets, we come. What happens? Let's let's say we're well, eating. Well, this is we're, that. I think you're confusing it a little bit. It, it, it's, it's an all, evolution. It's all one thing. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's all right. Separate. But but I want to. I want to. In other words, there are people out there listening. Well, how do I get involved? You come to one of these dinners. No, let's, no, no. It's not the dinners. Now, right? When are we're not doing dinners? Yes, right we now? don't even do the no dinners. More dinners? Yeah. No yeah. more dinners. Yeah. Am I a bad <laughs> listener? Yeah. You're not paying attention. Oh, so I'm man. trying to help you. You know what? I have to stop doing those drugs. <laughs> I really yeah. do. I, um. So, but so with this speaker series. What yes, is it going to look like? How is it going to roll out? And how do people how do people apply to get this scholarship? And what are the what's the sort of the criteria? So one, our website www.blackwomeninfood.org and Dine Diaspora will lead you to the application that launches on Wednesday okay, um, coming up. And once you're in our community, once you sign up, even if you're not applying to be on the um, to re- to actually receive a grant, you can just sign up to be in the part of the community, mm-hmm. and you will get access to all of the um, events that we're coming up with. So this year we're focusing on you know panels, right? The speaker series, mm-hmm. and it'll all culminate in the end of the year in the fall in our conference. So the Black Women in Food conference will happen here in D.C. Mm. We're inviting not just black women in food, but anyone who wants to um, support their work. So this is about community building beyond just black women, but the ecosystem that really supports any black women in food to thrive. Where's the event? It will be here in D.C. We'll we'll get you that information. We're working on it. (laughs) So I'm just sort of curious, though, when we're talking about women in food, that's a lot bigger than just chefs. And restaurant owners, there's so many makers out there. There's so many women farmers. who are, yeah. right, and farmers. So how do you go about reaching out to them? Because a lot of them are in these, you know, they're head down. They're in their silos. Like, they're very focused on what they're doing. So getting the outreach is tough. So we started Black Women in Food Initiative as a whole five years ago. Mm-hmm. And it starts with a nomination process that's open to the public for recognizing these black women in oh, food. Oh, I love that. So during March every year, we um, have a basically a source campaign from the public. We, we decided that there was too many gatekeepers in the food industry. Mm-hmm. There was too many leaders that were then recognizing people, that then selecting people. We needed to go to the public to have them share who in their community is doing great work. And so our categories are broad. We have six categories that go from anywhere from um, creators and innovators all the way to um, change makers and, co- and people yeah. that are chefs and, and cooks as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that makes so much sense because in you know in the food world, a lot of times it's who do you know, what do you know, Absolutely. right? So like you know we're we're kind of incestuous. We all know each other. We all talk to each other. So we're all working within. We're on this other level of what's happening. But it is really the public who 
knows the person who's making jam around the corner. Do you know what I mean? Knows somebody who's doing something really interesting. Sometimes it's so community focused. Yeah, and it's really expanding. Like I just came back from Minnesota and being on a farm for two days. And so it's just really about getting this message across. Were you wearing that dress? Because I bet that looked great. (laughs) I was wearing a similar dress. And then the next day I changed because it's not appropriate. She is the most most stylish cow milker we've ever had. I I hope you took video. That's all I'm saying. Are there organizations that help you spread the word? In other words, is there there some sort of alliance of... Of, Can I tell you what is our women, number one and- group that shares it? Are the women that we've recognized. Mm-hmm. We I circle bet. back into our community all the time. And a part of our community is th- these women serve as judges for the grants. We don't ever, like, we, we don't want to perpetuate the same system that we're trying to um, change and say, we are the ultimate deciders. We are going to then know, like, th- these women that Sounds are like recognized. Bush. <laughs> but for me, <laughs> but we, we um, these women are influencers in their own right. They're um, really amazing in their work. So they take it and they spread the word. Of course, we visit places like this to and carry forward because it's really about a broader community also getting involved. Um, so within the black women in food community, we are always making sure that everyone is carrying the mantle to pull someone else up. Well, to that point, let's talk about some of the people that you have featured and um, some of the amazing women that you have worked with. So do you want to go? I have so many favorites. Yeah, I mean, we've done um, great work with Chastity Cooper, who um, is doing great things in the wine industry as well. Um, And so she's also one of the women who we featured with Black Women in Food Initiative this year for 2022. It's important to include wine, because I have to be honest with you, for a long time, there were no black women in wine. This should be a TV Mm -hmm. show, Mm -hmm. actually. I know. Speak it it into existence. (laughs) Right? (laughs) With with a white male host. Yeah. Yeah. Are you paying a job for yourself? I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, no, but uh, I was actually at an event uh, the other night for Beaujolais Wine, mm-hmm. and there were uh, six women of color who are now writers for the yeah. wine industry. Yeah. And I mean, 20 years ago, that was not the case. I mean, I was one of the few women. I'm not even a wine writer. I was one of the few women there, mm-hmm. uh, but it was mostly, you know, old white guys. Yeah. So it's really changing. It's very, so everybody's very looking exciting. at me. Stop <laughs> well, I mean, it, but there is a change, and. It's important, and being an advocate and an ally for change is absolutely necessary. I actually think it would be a really cool TV show, don't okay. you think? If yes. you're watching, we'll make it. Yeah, we just right? need the audience. Yeah. I think the audience would totally be there. Yeah. Okay, so we have about two minutes. Tell everybody like where we can stay in touch to find out about all these panels, and will these panels be virtual as well as in person? Like, Are there ways for us to keep up with everything you all are doing? and how we can constantly stay uh, in the know. The number one way to keep in touch with everything we're doing is to get on our website, Mm www.dyingdiaspora.com. Sign up to be on the newsletter, and you'll get everything. If you're um, particularly focused on supporting the Black Women in Food Initiative specifically, Mm -hmm. www.blackwomeninfood.org. Across our social media platforms, at Dying Diaspora, we're spreading the word. Follow our Instagram and you you can't miss a beat. If you're into this, we're into you. Like right. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, we love it. Well, thank you both so much for coming thank on the you. show today. Do you want to say anything before I wrap us up? No, I've pretty much said it. Okay, great. Well, we want to thank all of our guests for joining us today on Foodie and the Beast. Uh, everything you heard here today is on the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you about everything happening in the 
DC Food, Wine, and Hospitality community. Check out uh, the events calendar again for all the Pride events happening around the DC metro area. June is just chock full, but there are so many other great things happening around the city. You'll find them there. Of course, the Buzz column has all the promotions happening in and around the area. Latest restaurant openings and those coming soon all in there as well. I do want to remind everybody that while it feels like COVID is over, uh, there are still people that ask you to wear masks. Just do it, please. It's not that big of a deal. Take your kindness pills, please, when you go out to the D.C. food, wine, and hospitality scene because there are staffing shortages, and that is not ending anytime soon. So remember, maybe that person who's waiting on you just started about 30 seconds ago and does not have the training. Try to be kind. Lastly, this is our last Foodie and the Beast for the next three weeks because Mama is going to Israel. I'm going on an amazing trip and I cannot wait till I get back so I can tell you all about it. Uh, we'll be here right after the July 4th I'll holiday. i do the show on my own. Yeah, no you can deal. do that. Good luck with that. Uh, anyway, so we want to thank all of you for joining us today. Those in studio, Andy, our amazing producer, and those of you listening today, everybody just please be safe out there, be kind out there, and have a delicious week.